This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Marriage. Marriage and religion. Okay, so if you've never seen Prince's Bride, you might not get that bit of nonsense. But once again, we are investigating this most fascinating combination. Just a few weeks ago, we did two episodes specifically on interfaith unions. Well, today... We're going to get all educated on courting, weddings, marriage, and divorce in the Mormon tradition. And our conversation is not going to be with an elder, bishop, or academic, but with a Mormon who did her level best to avoid walking down the aisle, finally did with much trepidation, and how she has survived up until now. Rachel Rueckert is a writer, editor, teacher, and seventh-generation Utahn. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and an MED from Boston University and serves as the editor-in-chief of Exponent 2. She is also the co-founder of Clio, a family history writing company. And she is the author of a new book that we're talking about today, East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. So we welcome to Common Threads, Rachel Ruckert. Hello, Rachel. Hello, thank you for having me. Certainly, and thank you for sharing all of your neuroses with us. <laughs> there are some of those. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little bit, but no, I, I have to say, it was a very compelling and deeply, deeply honest book. I mean, assuming that you didn't just make up Austin, it's, it's, uh, it's very, as I say, deep, uh, forthcoming, and honest, and it was a, a great read. Um, Thank you. My first question is, uh, assuming that, uh, not assuming, I know because of reading your book, that you are not entirely in a a, a bubble of LDS. Um, How are Mormon weddings and marriages different from other, and and, uh, let's keep it specifically for right now, in expressions of Christianity? So how do Mormon weddings differ from, say, Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalian, UCC, to the best of your understanding? Right. So I think for, you know, for most people, and, you know, there's sort of the ideal, and then there's what really happens. I'll just speak a little bit to the ideal. Um, There's a difference between our church buildings, our chapels, and um, LDS temples, which you might see off of the side of freeways, you know, very white and tall, and you're not allowed in unless you are a certain card-carrying LDS member of the church. And so, sort of the ideal and what was taught to me very early on in my life was that my uh, my aspiration and my goal was to go and get married in a temple. And what I was taught to be different about other religions and denominations is that this was not just a wedding, but it was also an ordinance. It was a sacred ordinance where you would essentially seal yourself. It's called a sealing ordinance to the person you are committing to, and you are also 
in that ritual, connecting yourself to all of your family. So it's very much a communal family ordinance, and it's considered a saving ordinance within Mormonism, whether it happens in this life or in the life after. Everyone needs to be sealed to someone or to a parent or something so that the whole human family sort of has that connection. So, so in that way, my wedding, I was married in the Salt Lake City Temple, where my ancestors had married for generations in that same building. And, you know, only a certain kind of level of activity, you know, family members and friends could attend. It was a limited session. It was very simple. And it was, it was religious. It was religious. And then after that uh, sealing ordinance, after that ceremony, then we, you know, left and we had more of a traditional ring ceremony like you might see in other Christian traditions. Although I have to say, even that at the time when I had my wedding in 2014, um, that was not encouraged, actually. It was, it was seen as kind of distracting from the primary purpose of that day, which was the sealing. And so ring ceremonies were not very common, or if they were, they were not very fancy and like walking down the aisle and kind of the whole parade of it. But now, um, now that's a, a lot more common, and it, I, I personally think that's a good thing because it helps other friends and family members who might not be able to participate in the ordinance feel more uh, part of that big moment. So if, if I was your best friend in the whole world and you say, hey, Fred, I'm getting married in the temple, I, as a non-Mormon, would I be able to attend? You would not. So, heartbreaking, I know. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you did yeah. you uh, did you come across that at all? Were there people who you really would love to have had at your wedding, but you couldn't because of that? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of put it into perspective, my stepmom could not attend, and also none of my siblings could attend because even though we had all grown up Mormon, they had not gone through the temple, and again, it's kind of like this higher level of, of, of commitment and you have to be a certain age and you have to have experienced certain things. So that was why I personally felt very strongly in having a ring ceremony and insisting on a ring ceremony that felt more like a wedding. And it really is sort of these two distinct things of like this religious ritual and a wedding. <laughs> um, and so that's how I was able to negotiate it. And I was able to have my stepmother speak at my ring ceremony and my siblings could all be in attendance because that was something really important for me. But it was also, especially at that time, again, it's become more common now, seen as sort of a odd. <laughs> it, it was odd. And there were plenty of snafus kind of trying to figure out how to walk down the aisle because no one had ever really done it before. <laughs> um, so. so so wait a minute. No, you're, you're telling me that I could attend that that part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it wouldn't have any sort of legal significance, but the cultural part of, you know, being part of this communal activity outside of the religiosity yeah. That is something that I wanted to make more inclusive and, and, for my family and my and, friends. And, and this ring ceremony does happen in the temple? No. So the ring ceremony oh. is is truly a part. So really, I mean, anyone can just like go to the temple, get married, have that sealing ordinance, which is also a legal marriage, and then just leave the temple and just wave everyone goodbye. And that's it. Um, but I chose to have like a ring exchange ceremony. Rings are not exchanged in the temple kind of that Western Christian tradition is not part of the LDS tradition. 
Okay, so where does that take place? So for anyone who wants to do the ring exchange, you know, they have to they have to plan an additional thing like I did. You know, something kind of extra and bonus, but I would say for most people I know who have been married in the temple, there's just no ring ceremony. I have seen a few couples who, you know, right before their reception begins, they'll do a quick sort of say some kind words to each other, change rings. And I have seen a few temple weddings where at the very end, um, the two just exchange rings without really saying any, anything. Again, though, it, it's, it's this interesting setup where the, the ring ceremony is not seen. It's almost, I think, culturally been seen as a distractor. Um, you know, the pomp and circumstance and the bride walking down the aisle, all this, I think, from my own personal experience, has been seen as distracting from the ceiling, which is supposed to be like a very sacred, reverent, holy ordinance. And that is the pinnacle of the day. And what about Mormons who live in the hinterlands? So uh, I'm, I know we don't have a temple here in Grand Rapids. We have an LDS church. But is, so if uh, two young Mormons fall in love in Grand Rapids, where do they get married? So it's very typical to travel for a wedding. And this was even more drastic, particularly when I was in India. And, you know, as part of the framework of my book, I I circumnavigate the globe. And I actually did attend sort of one of these fusion hybrid weddings in India of of an LDS couple. And they did get married locally, but they were planning to travel to Hong Kong for their sailing. That was the nearest temple for them from India to Hong Kong. They've since announced a temple in Bengaluru, but yeah, it's, you know, for me, just growing up in Utah, they were they were everywhere. But yeah, a lot of people have to travel for that. So they could get a a legal marriage, uh, uh, some wherever they are in Grand Rapids or the rural India, whatever. And then when it's convenient, they go somewhere else and get sealed. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, and that is a very recent development. So when I got married, that was not the case, and so that's why I think my ring ceremony was a little bit um, untraditional, maybe in a, a little bit subversive even. Um, but now they've changed it. I, I want to say within the last three years, where you can have a legal ceremony and a temple sealing relatively close. It used to be that you were you had to wait a full year after a civil wedding before you could go to the temple. I'm not sure why that was, but yeah, that's a, that's a recent change. Hmm, okay. And I think a lot of people, you even uh, indicated in your book, uh, some people have perhaps uh, too much of an ideal understanding of Mormon marriage, as if like there is hardly any divorce. But you indicate that you're just a couple of points lower than everybody else. Is that correct? That is true. That is true. And anecdotally, I can say, yeah, it's, it's, we are still human like anybody else. <laughs> Doing our level best, and life happens. <laughs> and, and, and what happens then, uh, uh, cosmologically? Okay, you have two people, they're sealed in the temple, supposedly forever, and then they decide... And literally forever, not not the uh, Methodist kind of forever, which means till mm-hmm. death do us, us part, but forever and ever. Forever uh, and ever, yep. Then, then what happens? What is the Mormon ex- 
explanation for that. And do you use the term annulment the way the Catholics do? Because it sounds, the more you're, you're talking, the more I'm getting a hint of uh, some common threads to uh, Catholicism. Yeah, you know, I have not heard the word annulment referred to, to sealing. And again, there's, there's the legal level of marriage, and then there's the sealing level. And so, for example, my parents are legally divorced. They legally divorced when I was in my teenage years, but they have not canceled their sealing. Canceled is the word that I've heard people refer to as people who go through a very arduous process to cancel a temple sealing. It requires letters to the highest degree of leadership in the church. Um, from just hearing other people's experience, it's very difficult to get sometimes, and sometimes it kind of entails dragging the other person's name through the mud to try to, like, show that, you know, no, this this ceiling really should be canceled. It's very fraught. There's actually a book by Carolyn Pearson called The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy that gets at this, and this is... Um, you know, I'm like, even as I'm speaking, I kind of have two minds about things. There's just kind of explaining the sort of the base level, but then there's also this complicated level of polygamy was legally ended in the LDS tradition in the late 1800s. But theologically, there's still some really painful, especially for Mormon women, remnants where, for example, my father who had divorced my mother, you know, however many years ago, he can get remarried in the temple for time and all eternity and the, and that whole shindig. And he can be legal. He can be, he can be theologically married and sealed to two women, but my mother can't, my mother cannot remarry in the temple. She would have to cancel her sealing, which would also not be something that she would consider because it's also a sealing that binds in her mind you know, her to her children. And so to break the ceiling with my father, a man that she felt betrayed her, you know, she doesn't want to be with him, but to break that ceiling in her mind, she would be breaking that connection to her children. And so that's not something that she would go through. Very few people um, attempt to cancel their ceilings, but theologically it is complicated and it's very painful, particularly for Mormon women. So what you're saying is your, your mother is ultimately, uh, is as it stands now, she is committed to spending eternity with your father as as a wife in, in the afterlife. Yeah, it sounds so strange. And I think the way that people sort of, you know, kind of get around this, because it, it feels so dated and so fraught. And so people are always, you know, they say things like, oh, it'll get worked out in the next life, or no one's going to be forced to do anything they don't want. But the reality is, I think polygamy and this residue that just it's just still there a little bit theologically in a way that is not equal among men and women. It's still yeah, it's it's brought. So my mom would often joke, you know, of like, it's going to be really awkward waking up on the morning of the first resurrection. You know, these these jokes that I think betray an underlying pain. And And I think, you know, that's that's the flip side of, you know, on one hand, and I think maybe for people who grew up in maybe more ideal, really happy families and circumstances, the idea of being forever tied to the person that you love in your family, no matter what hardship or trials or tragedies strike, it can be really comforting. For me and my family, forever <laughs> sounded like a really terrifying thing. 
And so even though I loved my husband, that idea forever was very fraught for me, I think, because of what I had seen. Oh, believe me, my wife and I love one another deeply, but uh, we we made sure that till death do us part was highly emphasized in our wedding. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's so different from my culture, and I, I'm with you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm with you. Forever's a long time. <laughs> if, so. you're, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. My name is Fred Stella, and Rachel Ruckert is our guest, and she is talking about her book, East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. Uh, Rachel, when did your apprehension about marriage begin? That's a good question. I think it's difficult for me to really pinpoint. I think it was a very gradual thing because... When I was growing up, all I knew was what I knew. You know, and, that's funny because yeah. the, the, the way you're beginning your answer sounds <laughs> sounds like the kind of answer you'd get to some, uh, from someone when you ask them, when did you realize you were gay? It was like, yeah, that's exactly uh, it. Not, not exactly. <laughs> I, I was hit. Boom. Hey, I think I'm gay. No, it's you're right. It's gradual. But But I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, you know, but I think particularly when my parents' marriage... Um, disintegrated in a very public, very, um, very sort of violent way. Um, I think I started to start to recognize the cognitive dissonance for cognitive dissonance of like, oh, my family does not look like the ideal that um, I'm supposed to be aspiring to, that others around me speak of and describe. But I think... You know, there also became something of my personality that sort of started to, to come through. And I talk about this a lot, especially in chapter four of my book. So much of this writing this book was about articulating the invisible, just even trying to explain it to myself. I had to write this book because I had to understand what marriage meant to me and where I'd gotten these ideas and, frankly, this terror that by getting married, I would somehow cease to exist or, you know, throw away my sense of agency or power or succumb to these, you know, phantom pressures, um, you know, real and imagined. It was just such a fraught thing for me. So, you know, similar to your question, in some ways, I feel like I've been writing this book my whole life because I've been puzzling through this all my life. But, you know, by the time I became a teenager, I had a particularly large fallout with my mother who we later understood to have a severe mental illness of a delusion disorder. I actually became her legal guardian in my twenties. So just to give you kind of like a sense of, of that. And so, but, but I started to get kind of sideways with, with some of the things that was, was taught well-meaning, but you know, my mother would say things like she, she would pray and she would say, I hope that my brothers would get married in the, in the temple and go on missions and that the girls would get married in the temple. <laughs> it was like the boys get to kind of do some stuff. That's kind of how I understood it. But the girls, like I understood like me and my sister, our job was to get married and that didn't go so well for her. And <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see this dissonance. I think things like um, I've always had, I think sort of an innate ambition 
And whether that came from sort of just wanting to prove myself or to be seen as good, you know, these, these things are complicated. But I, I started to feel a little bit allergic or a little bit, a little bit um, just put off by, by well-meaning advice by people at church. My, my, my church leaders, you know, my youth church leaders would say things like, make sure you pray for your husband every night. You don't know where he is, but he's out there somewhere. And we would often every year make lists of things we wanted in a future husband. And of course, you know, when I'm 13, I'm writing things like, I want a husband with long hair. He plays the guitar. <laughs> and I'm a really, really, you know, thought, you know, but, but just so much focus so early on, whether from our, our hymns as children to, you know, these lessons, I, you know, I had never seen a female dentist or a doctor, you know, I just didn't. And I think that was particularly where my zip code was. This is not, I have to say, like, this is my experience. This is not necessarily standard for um, your typical LDS person. And I say this in the end of my book, but this is this is one Mormon story. But it is one Mormon story. So this is, you know, limited to mine. But, um, but I, I definitely felt like not a lot was expected of me. And I wanted to do something. And I don't know how much of that, again, was just sort of an innate hammering in my heart and how much of it was wanting to kind of prove myself because I, I was rejecting in a very soft, very kind of good girl Mormon way, you know, these pressures that were put on me. And so I, I really began throwing myself into my studies and to traveling and, and always feeling that tension, you know, even, even very early on, I, I studied anthropology and English and I, I went on several anthropology field studies and that was very much a foundation for this book that ultimately came but i i remember writing a poem when i was 21 in a village in ghana in the middle of just nowhere with just beautiful stars such openness such a pivotal moment in my life and i i was writing this poem talking about you know i'm too old for these dangerous dreams and in hindsight i just die a little bit thinking like you were you were a child, you were 21, you know, you were, you're doing, you were exactly where you needed to be, but there's just always been this, this invisible air making me realize, like feel like to be good, to be worthy, uh, to be credited, to have community, to be loved. I needed to be married. Even if I didn't feel like that was my path or I didn't want to. And, you know, theologically it is considered a saving ordinance. So, you know, real life, and, you know, I know many people who are single or divorced, you know, so real life is just real life, but theologically, again, you know, it's, it's complicated, and I, and I felt that pressure. Uh, your husband, Austin, plays a major role in the book, and uh, you are as open about him as you are yourself. Uh, uh, Scars and all, and I'm curious how he has reacted to the book now that it is out. And and yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, and I think I described this early in the book, but Austin identifies as a not overly concerned person. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he's actually he's uh, you know I'm the one who's worried about his privacy. I'm the one who you know I I I kind of carry this for for his part. He's honestly just delighted when the book came out. He bought 50 copies without even asking me if I got an author's discount. Like, you just bought 50 <laughs> copies of the book. 
So that's a little bit about that's a little bit about him, and I think he appreciates openness, and um, and I think he also recognizes I'm pretty hard on myself, and he, you know, definitely some hard moments, but it's hard not to love Austin from this book. <laughs> yeah, that is very true, and and I will say this that as I was reading, boy, did I see a number of dynamics reflected in my own marriage because I am hmm. way way kind of like Austin, and my wife is. Kind of, sort of like you. Those <laughs> <laughs> so balances, I'm going say. Yeah, we do. I, I, I don't know how many times I say, well, don't worry about it. And, and, and nothing gets her going more than when yeah. I say, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, yep, I'm glad that I could hit on something a little universal there. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you paint... Um, Austin, as being somewhat liberal, but also at his core, he's really Mormon, or at least he was, I don't know about today, mm-hmm. but he was Mormon about marriage. Um, Absolutely. And uh, tell us, uh, if you can briefly, because we're coming down to the wire uh, here, um, tell us about that dialogue you had with the Quakers. So it was Quakers and Mormons talking about marriage, and uh, it, it, it was an interesting exchange, especially his response. Yes, we we inhabited Mormonism quite differently and still do. Um, The very first time we ever met, our very first impression was at an interfaith discussion group with some Quakers who shared the parking lot of our church in Cambridge. And a woman was asking about women's roles. And I could tell, you know, she had heard some things and was concerned. And, you know, being the young feminist I was, she, she leans over and she's like, I heard that women can't get to heaven unless they have a husband. Is that true? And my response, you know, was just kind of wanting to just normalize everything and just show her, like, I'm a normal person. So I tell her, you know, you know, my parents are divorced. It happens. I don't think it's any stranger than in other parts of the world and other religions. And Austin sort of mansplained me. He's in the same group of folding chairs, and, and he's, he, he kind of pipes up, and he's like, actually, it's not encouraged. And then proceeds to explain the orthodox stance that I've outlined, that a ceiling is considered eternal and it's supposed to be the highest calling that we can do in this life and in the after. And that so endeared him to you. I, okay, no, maybe not. Not at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I avoided him after that comment for several months. <laughs> uh, Rachel, we, we are, we are um, close to the end of this episode, but uh, there's a lot more to talk about. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to make time for us next week around the same time. I look forward to it. Thank you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Rachel Rukert has uh, been our guest today. She is the author of East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.
This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Rachel Rooker. She is the author of a book on marriage and Mormonism. It's entitled East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. A little bit about our guest. Rachel is a writer, editor, teacher, and a seventh-generation Utahn. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and an MED from Boston University and serves as the editor-in-chief of Exponent 2. She is also the co-founder of Clio, a family history writing company. And we welcome once again to Common Threads, Rachel Rueckert. Hello, Rachel. Great to be back. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Well, um, for those who may have missed last week... uh, you the the book that we're talking about east winds is about a journey actually it's about several journeys some of them are inward and some of them are outward because you are a traveling kind of gal uh and and you're coming to terms with marriage within your community which is mormonism uh and so as far as the outward journey or journeys, because you've been around the world. Uh, it's been fascinating reading about the places that uh, you've been and the people that you've encountered. What was the reaction to your wanderlust from your LDS community? I experienced a lot of, I think, concern. And whether real or imagined, I think sometimes pressures can be implicit, and sometimes they're explicit. Uh, my grandmother was definitely someone who felt free to make her concerns explicit. Um, you know, it was it was seen as a phase or, you know, something I needed to outgrow so that I could, you know, come back and settle down and find a nice man and start a family. And, and, and a lot of places that I went were considered dangerous, um, you know, not necessarily according to, to me, but again, thinking of my grandmother and, you know, just kind of like, why are you going there? And is it safe? And what if you perish? And, you know, these, um, these concerns, but it, it, it has been interesting in hindsight to compare it to some of my, from, of my male friends who are LDS and just one quick counter example. At the same time I was getting married, one of my good friends, had just got engaged and was climbing Mount Everest and, you know, very, very different journeys, obviously. But when he came home, he was invited to give firesides and talk to youth about, you know, this, this incredible adventure. And, and in my head, I'm like, you know, you, you could have died. You were engaged. You know, there, there's, there are two ways that story can go. But I think particularly for, for a Mormon, when I felt, personally, and this is just my own experience, but I felt that I was avoiding the call in people's eyes to, to get married and start a family and start doing the things that really matter, that my priorities weren't in order. Sure, sure. Tell us about the title 
Um, before I read your book, I never knew about winds being uh, an issue in Utah. Yeah, um, the the title East Winds comes from a wind phenomenon that's particularly strong in Davis County, Utah, which is about a 20-minute drive from Salt Lake City. And these storms have been documented since the Mormon pioneers' first arrival, and they are particularly devastating storms with hurricane-force winds. And one of my very, very, very first memories, and this is one of the ways I start the book, is I am... I'm in Davis County in my childhood home and I'm holding my pigtails because I'm so terrified that I'm going to blow away. I watch the mailbox blow off. Shingles are flying off the road. My parents are, you know, running around to try to save the mailbox. And I was so afraid of, of blowing away that, um, that was such a, an inciting moment in my life. And, and it's interesting how metaphorically this has sort of come true because in time, in our own ways, my dad would blow away from that home. I would, and and my mother, in, in ways that were violent, <laughs> like an east wind storm. And so, in many, many ways, I've continued to feel that tension between my windy, restless nature and a desire for community and grounding and belonging and love. And that's a tension that runs throughout the book. Um, but, you know, these east wind storms still, just two years ago, there was a really bad one that came through Salt Lake and just uprooted thousands of trees. And, you know, I, I was actually teaching that day. I, I walked outside and these enormous oaks just, just down all of them. I, I mean, it was, it was devastating. It's devastating to see it when that happens. So. That is fascinating. As I say, I never heard about that. We always hear about uh, tornadoes in Oklahoma and hurricanes in Florida had not heard about the east winds in Utah. Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes they're called canyon winds, and I think it's more the kind of the old-timers who still call it east winds. Now it's just hurricane winds, but now those are those are east wind storms, and I'm, and I'm putting it out there with okay. my title. <laughs> All right, yep, yep, you own it. Um, I, I know that Mormons uh, tend to have, at least traditionally, large families, what's the company line on birth control? I mean, I still remember Mitt Romney addressing a college graduation, and he's telling the grads to get married young and have a quiver full of children. Um, yeah, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, fortunately, you know, Mormonism, like any religion, there's a whole spectrum of belief and people doing different things. I definitely have a few friends, although I do think it's rare now, who come from, you know, 13 children. Um, I had three brothers and sisters and I think especially for the coming generation, whether it's, you know, money or whatever is most of my friends have one to three children, um, those who have had children. So definitely birth control is very, very common. I have not heard anything in my lifetime about, you know, don't use birth control, but I, but I definitely have felt the pressure of you need to be having children. And in fact, I'll, I'll just share a quick story of my best friend, Carol Ann. She's a character in the book. She um, almost missed her flight to her wedding in Boise, Idaho. Um, it was, it was a temple wedding and that's where her family was. So that's where she was getting married and sealed. And she almost missed the flight because she was getting a mysterious package uh, from FedEx. And she was very frustrated. And even more so when she opened the package and it was a wicker bassinet. Um, for her wedding gift. <laughs> and that's, you know, 
motherhood, wifehood, you know, these, these things sometimes get blurred in my tradition. Sure, sure. And you've mentioned uh, a few different examples of uh, really young girls getting gifts from their parents that would indicate that they were getting married tomorrow. I mean, they may not get married for 10 years, but might as well start with the gifts right now. So getting things like vacuum cleaners and uh, uh, furniture and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was one, one girl I went to middle school with and I'm happy to report that that was the only time I have heard of that, but you know, whether, I mean, we were 14 at the time, so that was, seemed like particularly egregious, but you know, people, people do still, not as much anymore, but people still do get married right out of high school or at 19, but especially early 20s. Um, this is very common. Mm-hmm. Um, I never knew until reading your book that women can be missionaries. When did that start? You know, I'm not sure when it started, but it's been a while. But the thing that's particularly changed in the last 10 years is the proportion of female missionaries to male missionaries in the field. Around the time I was graduating high school in 2007, there had been um, a talk given by the president of the church, Gordon B. Hinckley, that had said something to the effect of, while we admire the service of female missionaries, you know, we recognize that the, the most important mission for any young woman is, is to get married and have a family. And so a little bit of that contradiction there women used to have to wait until they were 21 to serve on missions. And when I was growing up, there was a little bit of a stigma of, you know, well, they failed their chance to get a husband. And so I guess they can go on a mission, but that's, that has changed quite a bit now. Um, Now men can go at 18, women can go at 19. Still not quite sure why that's different, but that has made it so that there is a much more equal proportion of, of women going out and sort of having that, important coming of age experience. Proselyting is not my personal cup of tea. It's not something I would have done, but it, it is nice to see that that at least has equalized a little. I don't see any more of the sentiments of, you know, you, you, you can't go or you shouldn't go until you've failed to snag a husband. I, that, that seems a little, fortunately, less common. But if you were a man, you wouldn't have much of a choice if you wanted to be a member in good standing of the church. Am I correct? It's true. You know, there's, there's, there's not going to be any, you know, official kind of slaps on the wrist or anything like that. But culturally, there is an enormous amount of pressure for men to go on missions. And there's a whole culture around that and people coming home early and sometimes mental health struggles. But it definitely has been sort of a rite of passion, uh, rite of passage for for young boys to kind of go off and then they come back and they're men and they're ready to get married and be serious and start a family. You know, so they, they also experience that pressure in an unhelpful way. I think, mm-hmm. um, I think if there is a message in my book, it's very much about everyone has their own journey and their own truth and their own agency and learning to recognize and identify that outside of outside pressures as thick as they might be is, is something that I, I really hope we can teach our youth. You say uh, in the book that you dated a lot in college. Uh, A couple of things about that. First of all, you also dated non-Mormon men. And I'd like to know why, if, I I mean, when you were dating them, did you, even in the back of your mind, ever think, hey, I could get married to this guy, even though it would mean 
a lot of complications? Uh, or did you just date them because, you know, they were, they were fun guys and there's nothing wrong with just hanging out with a fun guy? It's <laughs> a good question. I think, you know, just speaking for myself, and I don't know that I had the most sense of self when I was in my early 20s of sort of flailing about. And, um, you know, so I think in my head, I think probably I never really thought it could be serious because I still had um, a lot of investment of I have to be able to get married in the temple and you can't marry someone who's not a Mormon in the temple. So I think I always had that in the back of my mind and heart, um, not necessarily something that was mine, but something that had been really instilled in me. You know, but I, I do see a lot of my friends, particularly, you know, quote unquote, older singles are talking like late twenties, early thirties who marry outside of the tradition. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say if I never would have met Austin, if I wouldn't have gone on this path, I, I definitely could see, <laughs> um, you know, I, I could see it more possibly. I think even just with Austin, you know, sometimes having the same religious tradition, there's this assumption that that means that things are going to be easier because you have shared beliefs. But actually, you know, I think every marriage is a little bit of a mixed faith marriage. And that has definitely been the case for me and Austin, the different ways we inhabit the spectrum of Mormonism. If um, just... Okay. Thank you. Uh, very quickly, Rachel, I just want to remind people that you're listening to WGVU. The program is common threads. I'm Fred Stella and Rachel Rookert is our guest. She is the author of, East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. And also, again, sometimes we get seduced by the ideal. I'm curious, because it sounded like you did date a, a lot of guys. When you were dating Mormon men, would you just assume that they're always going to be good boys and that nobody was ever going to try to cross the line sexually with you? Or are they, you know, just guys and, <laughs> you know, do what hmm. a lot of guys do? Oh, yes. This is this is a fraught one. I think, you know, Mormonism does a lot, and I'm curious what it is for youth now, but for my growing up, it just felt a lot like, you know, abstinence, abstinence, abstinence was what was taught. And, and I think there was a lot of kind of confusion and pain about like, well, what happens in the spectrum between, you know, that like not doing anything, never kissing, never holding hands and penetrative sex, you know, sorry to be like that. But, um, it's like, I, I can say from my own experience, I felt like I dated a lot of Mormon men who identified with having what they called pornography challenges. Mm -hmm. I definitely felt that I was responsible as the woman for kind of holding the line and keeping things in check. And, and I'm, I'm still like pretty sad about that. I think that, you know, moving the conversation away from purity culture to more of a culture of consent, I think might, might help, but there's just a lot of guilt and a lot of kind of shadow selves that kind of run around. And, and I think, from my own life, speaking of from my own life, I've definitely felt that I was somehow, yeah, somehow like more in control, more responsible. And I don't think I recognize how much of that was an LDS thing. I don't, you know, I did date a few non-LDS guys who I have to say were always respectful of my choice not to have sex. Um, that's definitely not the case for a lot of people that I know too. You know, I, I, I think there's a whole spectrum out there. Um, but, 
I will say this, and this this is, a, I think, not an often understood part of sort of that purity culture, but I felt almost like a strange corrosive like empowerment of that I am in control and that I am an object of desire. I mean, I didn't have language for this at the time, but I think when I actually ultimately did get married and sex was just like suddenly a switch of like, you can have sex whenever you want all the time. That was a very difficult transition for me. And I never imagined that I would be that woman. You know, I heard, I heard stories about like those women who get married and don't know how to have sex. And I just thought, Oh, I'm so ready for this. I am. I am so worldly and I'm, you know, a sexy, you know, whatever. And, and it was, it was a hard transition to realize like, Oh, this, (laughs) yeah. Like I had not actually been able to inhabit my own desire all those years because I was managing someone else's and even being an object of desire like that is, that is still an object of the patriarchy. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Sure. Sure. Now I, I mentioned last week, about uh, your wanderlust and uh, how you traveled all over the world. And you've come in contact with a number of different cultures and religions. And I'm curious how you reacted to all of these. Were you ever challenged by these theologies? That is to say, did they tempt you to reexamine your beliefs? Uh, That's the first part of my question. So I'll I'll let you go with, with that. So we're talking about uh, people from other Christian expressions, and we're also talking about people of vastly different religions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think it's probably the anthropologist in my heart, but I have not always, like, I've never really had a problem accepting and appreciating that other people have wildly different cultures and traditions. And perhaps it's because I felt so often so misunderstood, you know, even just like going to a holiday party at a bar and I've got, you know, a, a Shirley Temple in hand and I start getting very personal, strange questions that no one wants to talk about at the bar. Like I promise, you know, so I'm kind of, I, I think I kind of feel like sometimes I'm in this fringe tradition. And so I, I'm mindful of, yeah, again, I think it's the anthropology in me that just, I want to just understand and appreciate and listen. And so I didn't, I didn't feel like I was often going around like interrogating my own faith against others. I think I was just letting their experiences be theirs. But I do think implicitly, even in my very early desires to travel, I just love seeing that there are so many different ways to live and that my own tradition of marriage and how it was taught is just one small, you know, star in a large constellation of the human experience. So, so yeah, you know, in, in Peru, especially in kind of these earlier iterations of something that was called trial marriage. I was fascinated to read accounts of husbands who would actually mock their wives if they found out they were a virgin before marriage, you know, just like the little opposite of purity culture, um, you know, and expressions of doubt I found were, were more common and kind of a reckoning with uncertainty. Um, in, in the Hindu tradition, there was a part of, um, the Kannada-speaking region that I, I went to a Brahmin temple with a friend, and he was translating the ceremony, and there's a part where the groom just stands up and walks out of the room and says, you know what, forget this, you know, I've got to study the Vedas, I want to go to the sacred city of Varanasi, I, I don't want to be tied down with this, and, you know, this is this is a canonized thing, you know, it, it's a, it is a performance, and it is gendered, so that can't be ignored. But at some point, the father of the bride brings the man back and says, you can take my daughter with you on this journey of life, and the ceremony continues. You would never see something like that in an LDS setting where 
suddenly I felt the conversations get very, very, very simple, very fast of like, how wonderful, so happy for you forever and ever. Can't wait. This is going to be the best, <laughs> you know, just like very, 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 um, just very certain, just very certain yes. of like, good job. Yep. You did it. And sure. so to just see that, um, an acknowledgement of the road not taken, that was really meaningful to me, um, to see that. And I think it allowed me to accept that I have my own uncertainties and doubts and to embrace that as my past and, and to make peace with it and actually find a lot of romance in it because choosing partnership and, you know, giving up on certainty and instead choosing faith in the day-to-day choice of partnership to me feels more empowering and actually feels more beautiful. When you were in India and in, in the book, I see that you're in India twice if memory serves. So one time you spent, uh, uh, in the Buddhist community there with the Dalai Lama Mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then also with Austin, you became very close to a Hindu family. You, you mentioned them, uh, in the temple. Now in this environment, you mention, uh, performing Hatha yoga, learning meditation practice. And, uh, when you just talked about the, uh, the, being in the temple, it seems like you didn't just observe, but you participated in the puja ritual. And then, mm. and then later on, you actually take what many people might call a Catholic pilgrimage in Spain, the, the Camino. Mm. So that's a good point. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious if all of your, uh, um, uh, LDS friends read this book and find that you engaged more than an observer, more than an anthropologist. Are you Hmm. opening yourself to criticism? You know, I've, I've actually been pretty surprised at the reception of the book so far, because when I've written things like op-eds in the past, I, I have often felt because I kind of straddle this in between place where I'm very comfortable with being, sort of in no man's land between, you know, faith and doubt and certainty. And, you know, I, I just kind of live in this liminal space. I'm not the most orthodox and I'm also not out of the church. You know, like it's, um, I, I'm very comfortable with that space, but I often have received criticism in the past when my writing from both spectrums of orthodoxy, where the very, very, very conservative folks will be like, this isn't Mormonism. In fact, we don't even say the word Mormon. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? Like there's that crew. And then there's the other crew, which are just like the very, very angry ex-Mormons who are just like, you know, what a load of rubbish. Like, why don't, you know, you know, you're in a cult, <laughs> you know, like these are, these are kind of the, the pillars. And I've actually found that nuanced believers and definitely more active members and, and post-Mormons along that spectrum have identified with the things in the book. And I, I'm hopeful that it's because I, I just told my own story <laughs> and, you know, so po- hopefully people can just kind of project their own experience into it, but I'm not making a case for anything. And it's not a spiritual memoir in that sense. You know, my religious tradition accentuated this universal kind of challenge of what does long-term partnership mean in this century with secularism and so much changing in the world um, with individuals, but, you know, what, what does it mean? And I think that's a question all of us answer a little bit at some point. And I think my, background and the stakes of being taught that this was eternally binding and not reversible, you know, just kind of heightened, heightened that. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, people from my childhood neighborhood who I, I wouldn't 
think that they would like this book. You know, they they are champions of this book, and and people who've been out of the church for years too, I think, can find something in it. So, I mean, it's it's only two three weeks old now, so you know, <laughs> we'll see. But so far, I've I've been pleased that it seems to resonate with a spectrum. Sure. We only have a, a couple of minutes left. If you could be brief in this answer, uh, I'd appreciate it. But I once read that uh, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints is like some other religions or some other expressions of religions in that it is great. It's a wonderful religion for round pegs. But if you're a square peg, life can be really challenging, right? So if you are an easy fit emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, uh, it's very rewarding. But if you do march to the beat of a different drummer, it can be a, a chore. I'd love to know your response to that. I think I think that's a fair assessment. I definitely identify as more of a square, and most of my friends are in that boat. There, there is a fair contingent, you know, of, of people in that category and people who choose to stay or choose to leave who are on that fringe, because there's. It was a really beautiful kind of radical tradition at the heart of it of personal revelation and change and, you know, just really fascinating beginnings that is at the core of the, of the tradition and the doctrine. I will say, you know, for people like Austin, you know, who is white and straight and married, you know, these things are, and I think maybe the most important factor is just, a person who's just full of faith. He just believes things in ways that I don't necessarily, um, you know, the church means so much to him and it's so just beautiful and easy. And I, you know, I often come home from church and I am exhausted and I am sad and that is not a tension. I think everyone faces, but yeah, there's there. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's hard, but I, I hope that some of the work that I'm doing and what others are doing are just kind of making more space for the spectrum. Like being Mormon doesn't mean you believe one thing. It doesn't mean you look a certain way. It doesn't mean you do a certain thing. You can travel. You can think totally different things. You can believe wildly different things, and you can still claim this rich heritage. Well, uh, Rachel, I so appreciate your time today, uh, and I wish you the best of luck with the book and continued uh, positive response. Thank you. Thanks so much for reading and for having me. It's a real joy to be here. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Rachel Ruckert, and she is the author of East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU's Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.